welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. society of transformations. And, and I can prove that's true because if you get on any social media at all, what you will see is the coveted before and after pictures. You guys know what I'm talking about before and after pictures? Like when you get on social media, it's not enough that I've you know decided to go on a diet or I've decided to go to the gym. I've got to take a picture of how horrible I looked before and then I've got to take a picture of how good I look now and I've got to show you the difference because it's not just enough for you to see me now. You have to see the power of the transformation. I, I'm a car guy. I like car shows that they, you know, they go find like this old rusted heap out in somebody's old farm and they take it and they shine it up and they make something that you'd be proud to drive out of it. And at the end of those shows, there's, there's always like, here's what it was before. And they give you a picture of it. And now look at what happens after the transformation. But the best place that I think we see this in our society is those home fix your home shows, whatever it is. I think of specifically the one that we loved was uh, fixer upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Any fixer upper fans? All right, good deal. I, I love that. I love that show because um, at the beginning of it, they take you into a house and they're like, okay, so here's this house. Here's the cracks in the concrete outside. Here's the ugly paint color. Here's the ugly orange carpet. If you know, you know what I'm talking about. Here's the ugly orange carpet. Here, here's the broken windows. Here's the, the landscaping that's done horribly. And then they begin to work in the house and it gives you this like 30 minutes of them pulling out walls and painting and designing and pulling in furniture and at the end of it I love what they do they take the owners of the house and they stand them in front of the house but they don't show them the house yet they take a picture of the house as it was before they print it 20 foot tall 30 feet wide they put it in front of them and said here is the house that you bought and then they take those pictures and spread them apart to reveal the new house and what it looks like now I love those before and after transformations well what you see in the scripture is a before and after transformation of believers. And for the next eight weeks, I want to focus on what it looks like before we are followers of Christ. We have the transformation of getting to know Christ as he works in our heart. And then what happens after what we look like after that. And we're going to see this specifically in the book of Romans. The book of Romans lays out, if you'll forgive this analogy, it lays out like a, a show of fixer upper. The, the beginning of the book begins with, here's what you look like before Christ. Here's who you are. It goes into depth about the transformation that Christ does in your life and shows you a picture of that. And then the book of Romans ends with a picture of what a believer should be when that transformation is, I can't say completed, but nearing completion, what a believer should be. And so what we're going to be doing for the next eight weeks is we're going to be focusing on the two bookends of Romans, the first three chapters and the last four chapters that give us that very definitive before and after look at what Jesus Christ does in our life. Now, the book of Romans was written by possibly the best gospel example of someone who showed you the worst of the before and the best of the after, the Apostle Paul. 
And if you're not familiar with Paul, he had one of the most glorious transformations of anybody. All salvation is magnificent. It doesn't matter if you think that you were wonderful in the first place and then you got saved and it doesn't change your life, or if you're a murderer who becomes saved. But Paul was one of the best examples of a picture of how dirty and how much somebody can reject God in the beginning and how they can be transformed to somebody who can serve God. See, Paul was a Pharisee, which was a Jewish, Jewish religious elite. These Pharisees, they hated Jesus because Jesus broke all the rules. Jesus didn't do what they said. They couldn't control him. He was changing everything in a way he was stealing their power from them. And they hated him and they hated his followers. And so we know about Paul that he was at least present at least one execution of a Christian, probably multiple. And we know that one of his biggest uh, themes in his life was chasing down and persecuting Christians. Until he met Jesus. And suddenly after he meets Jesus, you see this transformation in Paul where he goes wholeheartedly after hating God. But when he meets Jesus Christ, he goes wholeheartedly after following God. And he becomes one of the most influential people in the history of the world, not to mention the person who wrote the most of the, or most of the New Testament, showing us what it is like to be a Christian. So Paul speaks to the Romans here on experience of what a before and after can look like. If you've got your Bibles open, and read with me. We're going to start in verse 15 here. Paul speaking. He says, So as much as is in me, I am excited, I'm sorry, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live for faith, by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Hold your Bible open. We're going to keep coming back to that several times today. So Paul starts off here and he's talking about this and he says, listen, I am excited to share with you the gospel. Now, if you're not familiar with the word gospel, gospel just simply means the good news. I want to share with you the good news about salvation. He says within the gospel is the power of salvation. So Paul's saying, you know, the mechanism by which the message of salvation spreads is spreading the gospel. And I'm excited to tell you that you have an opportunity for salvation. You have an opportunity for that to come to you. That's what I get to do. Now, this presents a couple of problems, though, if you're hearing this for the first time, like the Romans were, or if maybe you don't understand it. A couple of problems with the good news, the gospel, the salvation. If the salvation is being brought by the gospel, if the message of salvation is being brought by the gospel, I've got some questions. Question number one is who needs salvation? Question number two is how does one get salvation? And question number three is from what do I need to be saved? And Paul goes and he gives those answers in his little introductory bit about the gospel here, starting off with who? Who needs to be saved? Uh, Paul says that salvation is available to all who believe. And so that is our answer to that question. You notice that he does not exclude any group of people having the opportunity to have salvation. He doesn't exclude murderers. He doesn't exclude adulterers. He doesn't 
exclude Romans or Jews or Greeks. He doesn't exclude Americans. He doesn't exclude black. He doesn't exclude white. He doesn't exclude anybody. He says all who believe have access to the gospel, have access to salvation. Now what this tells me is, is that all can be saved. All people need to be saved. If all people can be saved, that means that all people have a need for that. So your first take-home truth today is every person is in need of salvation. Every person in the world, from here in America to China to Africa to Australia, every person is in need of salvation. I like that. I like some amens. I better get a lot of those today. The second question is how? How do I get this salvation? How does it come about? So verse 17, Paul says, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So when we preach the gospel, when we share the good news, the good news should reveal the righteousness of God, who God is. And so the power of salvation, the power of the gospel and salvation is not simply about how good you can be, what your life can be like if you start going to church. It is about the righteousness of God. See, salvation is not about you. It is about how good God is. Is And he says the way that you access that, he says a phrase that's kind of confusing. He says, from the righteousness of God, from faith to faith. That, that, that's a hard one to wrap your head around. What does that mean, faith to faith? You guys have probably heard the saying, day to day. Age to age, that's completeness. Like if I say my day-to-day life, that's the completeness of my life. Age to age, that's the completeness of time. A to Z is completeness. So what Paul is saying here is that the salvation is available to us completely by faith. Nothing with nothing added into that, not faith plus works, not, not faith plus giving a little bit of money. Salvation is available completely by faith. That's our second take on truth, is faith is the complete key to obtaining salvation. Now, the third question that I have is, okay, I need to be saved because all people need to be saved. That's the who. Salvation is available to me by faith, so I can access salvation by faith. What do I need to be saved from? What, what, what is it that I'm, I'm looking for someone to save me from? What, what is that? Is there an earthquake coming? Somebody's going to give me some instructions about how to avoid the earthquake? Is the government really as bad as we think it is and I need saved from the government? Heaven forbid, next year is there going to be another mediocre Super Bowl halftime show that everybody's going to whine and complain and argue about for an entire week. Can somebody save me from that? Paul goes forward to answer, what do you need salvation from? In verse 18, and he says, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And these two things result in the wrath of God. So when you look at what, what Paul is saying here, the, we get this comparison of the gospel shows us God's righteousness, but then it also shows us our unrighteousness. It shows us his perfection and our imperfection. And the difference between his righteousness and our righteousness is what brings about the wrath of God. Our next take on truth is we need salvation from our unrighteousness and his wrath. Now, some of you are in church and like, wait, wait, wrath? Are we on the angry God? I like, I like the nice God. I like the God who loves. I like the God who gives and blesses. How, how did we get all of a sudden to a God of wrath? And for some reason in Christian culture, we begin to say that a loving God cannot also be angry, or an angry God cannot also be loving, that those two things are incompatible. But that is untrue. As a matter of fact, God's love is so much greater because of the wrath that he has, that 
his love would overcome his anger and his wrath. And God has a right to be wrathful. God has a right to be angry with humankind. God has a right to punish you and me. Why is that? Uh, let's th think of it this way. Let me see if I can give you an example that can help you understand why God could be um, separated from us, why God could be angry. Let's say that we were going to have a get-together at Ramsey Heights, and we were just all going to come together. You were excited to be here, and you showed up. You were going to meet some new people, and somebody in this church brought somebody that we had never met. And so we kind of walk up to them, and we're like, hey, how are you? It's good to have you. And we're sitting around in a group with this person, and suddenly this person, this person starts to tell stories, and you're like, uh I don't know about that. He's like, you'll never believe what I did last weekend. So I actually don't work. I, I, make, uh, I make my living off of scamming people on the phone. And last week, I got a hold of this sweet little old lady, guys. She was so gullible. I told her she'd won the lottery, and if she would just send me $1,000, that I would give her a million dollars. All she had to do was pay the processing fees, and she sent that to me. And you know what? I ended up taking her entire life savings. It was the greatest thing ever. How long would you sit beside that person? How long would you be in their presence? Would you be angry at them for that? What if they told another story? It's like, oh, the greatest day of my life, you won't believe this. So uh, back in 2001, me and my buddies, we had this plan, and it went down perfectly. All of my buddies were going to go hijack some airplanes and fly them into buildings, and we killed 3,000 people that day. It was great. It was wonderful. I'm not going to be around that person. What if you started telling the story that I was with this girl, and she kept saying no, but she couldn't stop me. And he starts laughing about it. How would you respond to a person that is like that? I can tell you, if you bring that person to Ramsey Heights, we will be in the news and the headline will be Pastor Punch's person at church, okay? That, that's, that's the way we feel about that. It's disgusting. It's unnatural. And it makes me angry that people not only live that way, but they celebrate that. The reason that disgust and angers us is because those things are so far outside of our character that we cannot fathom how somebody would find joy in that. Now let's apply that to God. Because God's character is perfection. He is completely perfect without flaw. So when he sees us, and even something that we would consider small, like a lie or gossiping, it is so far outside of the character of God that it is disgusting to him when we are unrighteous and when we sin. And he has a right because his character is so much higher than those. He has a right to be angry. He has a right to be disgusted. And he has a right to punish those things. He cannot be in the presence of someone who celebrates those things. So as Paul describes... This, this salvation concept, Paul's going to start to dig into the gospel. And it's going to explain to us how our character is so much lesser than and different than God's. And he's going to give us a picture of how unrighteous we are, how we've grown in our unrighteousness, and why God has a right to be disgusted and angry with humankind. Read with me verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 because that many may, uh, let me start that again. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. 
For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise... They became fools. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come out to this. Now, Paul starts to explain. He starts to share this in-depth part of the gospel. And I want you to notice something and listen carefully. Paul started sharing the gospel. He did not start with Jesus Christ. Let that sink in and listen for just a second because I want to make sure we didn't misunderstand what I'm saying. When Paul started sharing the gospel, his starting point was not Jesus Christ. He, he did not start with, for God so loved the world. He started with, the world is unlovable. There is no gospel that talks about Jesus in heaven that does not first start with the, with the teachings of sin and hell. You cannot have one without the other. So as Paul begins the gospel, he starts to build this picture of us, and it's going to show us a picture of how all of humankind grows deeper into sin. Now, we're going to see this on two levels. You will see this on a level of, of humankind, where humankind has continually fallen into different levels of sin. You're going to be able to apply some of these things to our society in America. But what I hope that we're doing, and the focus of this, is I hope that I can identify these things within me, and that you can identify these things within you. So as Paul begins to talk about this process of who we are, this process of man falling away from God, your next take on truth, the first step of man falling away from God is rejecting God. Paul makes this argument that God is evident and that we deny him. That God is not hidden, that there's no sense of God is kind of hiding himself from us and maybe we find him or maybe we don't. He makes a, a, a argument that God is evident and we deny him though he is easy to see. See, God gives us proof just in nature. Have you ever seen a sunset? There is no doubt if you see the beauty of a sunset that that is created by an artist. But yet there it is. Have you ever held a newborn baby? You know, the odds of a human being being born are less than you winning the lottery in every state twice in the same week. And yet, and yet we see human beings being born. We, we see that there must be something happening that's creating life in the world. We see the seasons change and somehow our world adapts. You can see mountains that take your breath away and oceans that have a vastness that we can't explain. And all of these things point to a design, somebody still in control, and a creator is the only way that could possibly work. His glory is on display for him. Yet our response as humans, every single human being, is our response is to reject him. And Paul's argument is this. If, if God is so easy to see, and then we come up with atheism, and we come up with I don't need God, and we, and we come up with he's not who, who I want him to be, I don't know which God it is, I believe there's something. He's saying that is by choice. If God is so evident that every human being can see him, every human being has been exposed to him, creation screams out the glory of God, it is by choice that we choose not to believe in him. We reject him, not we have disbelief. When Jesus walked around, he walked around doing amazing miracles. Walk up to blind people, boom, see. Walk up to lame people, get up, carry your bed, off with you. Walked up to lepers, be healed. 
He, he walked up to people and did this all the time. And there was this group of people who was always chasing him and hating on him and trying to catch him in the act of doing something wrong. This group of people called the Pharisees. And they'd see there and they'd see him heal. They're like, oh, that wasn't real. That wasn't real. That You faked that. That wasn't real. You're using demonic power to do these things. And one day they walked up to Jesus after seeing him do these things. And they said, okay, Jesus, you are who you say you are. Give us a sign. Do something amazing. Let's see a miracle so that you can prove who you are. And my, my thought when I read that story is, Jesus would be like, okay, here, let me show you. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not going to show you. I'm not going to give you a miracle. You've seen miracles you didn't believe. If I showed you another miracle, you won't believe. It's not about what you're seeing or not seeing. It's about your choice to reject me. And yet today, all humans are the exact same way. We think we are so smart. The Bible says you think you're smart, but you're foolish. We think we are so smart when we begin to call it intelligence to say, okay, mankind was not designed. Mankind evolved from something. And we, we have all the smartest, smartest people in the world. So that's the way we came about. The Bible says you think you're smart, but you're foolish. We come up with this theory. Where did everything come from? Okay, listen, there was nothing. And then there was something. You're a genius. There was something out of nothing. You're a genius. And the Bible says, no, no, you think you're being smart, but you're being foolish coming up with these things. Because God is evident in the universe. You just choose not to see him. This is the, the plight of every man, including myself. And we know there must be a God, because if you look at the history of humans, humans have kept trying to define and even inventing gods, which brings us to our next point. Your next take-home truth is steps moving away from God. Secondly is idolatry. Read with me verse 23 in your Bible. So speaking of men moving away from God, it says, And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corrupt or made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-feeted beasts, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. So the second step that we see is idolatry. We reject God, but upon rejecting God, we say there must be another God. And most idols, especially the Roman idols that Paul would have been speaking into, most idols are made in the image of a man or an animal. And then if you study any kind of ancient gods, they all had human traits and flaws. These different idols, they, they were angry, like they were known for being angry. They cheated on their spouses. They were drunk all the time. We made gods, human beings made gods, and then we created them like us with a sinful, broken nature. This is the next step of moving away from God. And why do we do this? It's because to us who are imperfect... God's perfection is overwhelming because it reminds me that I am not perfect and thus it reminds me that I am not God. What was the first sin? Don't say eating the fruit. Eating the fruit was the action of the first sin but what was in the heart of Adam and Eve that caused them to want to eat the fruit? What did Satan tempt them with? He said, if you eat this, you'll be like God's, knowing good from evil. He said, if you eat this, you get to be God and you get to decide morality. You get to decide what is right and wrong. What is the first sin that we all deal with is wanting to create our own morality. And last week we studied idols by happy accident, not knowing we were coming here. We studied idols and what we found is that idols are just personified human desires. 
All idols, if you look at them, all they really represent is something that I want to do. And so I'm going to put a name and a face to that thing that I want to do and worship it, hoping that I get to do it more. Which leads us to this new thing where we begin to worship our desires. The next thing, number three on your take-home truths in moving away from God is chasing lusts. Chasing lusts. Read with me verses 24 through 28. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust, one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving into themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Three times in that scripture, the scripture uses the words, he gave them up. So humans have rejected God. They've created their own gods to worship, which are just personified desires. And then God says, okay, I give you over to that sin, and humans chase their own lusts. One of my favorite books is a book called Hondo. It's written by Louis Lamour. It's been one of my favorite books since I was in like fifth grade. And some of you may be familiar with this because Hondo was adapted into a movie in which John Wayne was the star. And it centers around this cowboy, rough and tough, everything you think of a cowboy. He fights Indians, he rides horses, he's always in shootouts. And he finds this ranch with a woman and her son living there, and the husband has abandoned them. And so the whole point of the book is this relationship between him and this woman and trying to help them out and as he comes in he comes in and he has this like feral dog that follows him around you couldn't even call it a pet and the boy walks up to him and said can I pet your dog and Hondo says no no no, that's not a dog that you pet that dog I don't pet that dog nobody pets that dog and as the discussion continues the boy keeps getting closer and closer to the dog you guys all have kids or have seen kids you know how they kind of do just a little bit more to see how long they can get away with and the boy finally looks at him and says can I pet the dog and Hondo goes you do what you got to do. And the boy smiles and he rushes on the dog and he throws his hand out and the dog snarls and snaps at him. And the boy rips his hand back and starts crying. And the mom freaks out. She says, why did you let him do that? And Hondo says, he was going to do it anyway. It's best that he learns now. I told him not to do that. See, what Hondo did is he turned that little boy over and he said, you think you want this. But once you experience it, you're going to find out you don't want that at all. And when God gives people over to their lust, what he's doing is he's giving us an opportunity. He's going, you think you want that? Trust me, you're not going to like it when you get it. And so God gives us over to our unbridled lust. Specifically here, there's many of them that I think would fit, but specifically here, Paul goes into one of the greatest desires and lust in all of human history, and that is sexual lust. Now, we're not going to get into too much detail. We've got some kids in here. But just understand that historically, this has been the things, the first thing that people pursue when they reject God and they reject his boundaries is they reject his rules for sexuality. And so as people reject God, there's no reason to respect the boundaries that he creates. 
See, God designed sexuality. He designed every part of it. He designed the parts to fit together. He designed the sensations. He designed the workings of it. But he designed it to work within certain boundaries, specifically a marriage between a man, um, a man, a man and a woman. And now we see in our society, I love this is something that we can see a picture in our society in the last 50 years, but this is all of humankind and this is individually. We see now that those boundaries are rejected. We see the cost of those. I heard it put this way this week, and I, I really like this example. How many of you guys have ever built a fire in your living room? Okay, it took a few of y'all, y'all like, uh, no, oh, fireplace, right? That's what you were thinking. And some of you just now got the fireplace. See, when you're thinking, did I build a fire in my living room? You're thinking, build a fire on the coffee table. We wouldn't do that. Oh, but a fireplace, we can build a fire in a fireplace. What's the difference between those two things? One of them has a well-set and defined set of boundaries that keeps you safe. See, if you build a fire in your living room within the boundaries that will control it, it will bring warmth, comfort, and light to your living room. You take that exact same fire outside of those boundaries, it will burn your house down. And this is, this is the truth of sexuality. If you use sexuality within the boundaries it was designed to, it will bring warmth, light, and comfort into a marriage. But if you remove it from those boundaries, it will burn your house down. And God says, if you want that, I'll give you over to it. It will control you. It will own you. And he, he says that I will allow you to do this because you experience destructiveness. If you look in those scriptures, it says to dishonor their bodies. Other translations say they are destructive to their own bodies. The Bible says this. It says all sins that man sin are against God, except for one, and I'm paraphrasing. He says that he who creates sexual or commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What Paul is saying here, or what the Bible is saying, and what Paul is pointing to, is that this is a sin that brings destruction upon us. Since the 1960s, we've lived in a society of free sexuality. We went from a society with boundaries, and now the only boundaries that are left on sexuality are consent, most of the time, and age. And here's what we're seeing. 85 plus percent of men in America are dealing with a pornography addiction. That means that when you see somebody, unless you see in their life that they live their life within boundaries, you should assume that they should instead of assuming that they shouldn't. The numbers for women are climbing as well. 40% of women are dealing with that unrestrained sexuality in our society. In our society, one out of every six women have either survived an assault or experienced a sexual assault. Every 68 seconds in America, somebody is sexually assaulted. Our house is on fire because we've moved away from God, we've rejected Him, and we've rejected our boundaries. And now our society, us as human beings and individuals, live with uncontrolled lust. God says, I give you over to it so that you can experience the destructive nature of it. I don't have a lot of time to camp here, but it's in the scripture, and, and I want to hit it for a second. Paul goes on to show us how lust grows. Lust grows. See, unrestrained lust starts as a couple of teenagers in the back of a car parked somewhere. It starts as a few pictures on a cell phone or a computer. But he, he continues on in how lust grows because it is never satisfied, and when it is unrestrained, it grows. And he moves into a picture of homosexuality. It says that a woman leaves her natural use, men leave the natural use of women, and burn for lust in each other. 
the explanation of this is that Paul's saying, hey, you start off with just taking those restrictions off and suddenly it consumes everything. Listen, a fire that you start on your coffee table will soon spread to your couch and then your walls, it will burn your house down. And on this topic, this is the only other thing I want to say before we move on. The Bible describes this behavior as destructive, not freedom. I'll be very clear. Our society is telling us this is freedom. This is a good thing. The Bible says, no, this is destruction. This is actually a punishment to be allowed to do this. And so as, as we talk about this as Christians, I just want, to, want you to know, we're going to get to verse 32 in a second. You can read it now if you don't believe me. But verse 32 says there is really no distinction between people who live in sin and those who celebrate sin. They are both responsible for the same punishment. So as Christians, as followers of Christ, we cannot celebrate or support a lifestyle that is destructive. A recent study came out and it said this. This is a secular study. It said that let me look at it here. It says that for those who live in a homosexual lifestyle for 20 years, actively homosexual for 20 plus years, their life expectancy is 20 years less than a heterosexual counterpart. I mean, I'm not making that up. That, that means that if you live in this, it will destroy you. It takes years off your life. We cannot celebrate something that destroys people because we see it as a symptom of people rejecting God. So moving on. So the slide of sin, uh, the slide of sin in humankind. First, we reject God. We create idols. We chase lust with no restrictions, and that creates a destruction in us. Number four is we become void of all morality. Void of all morality. Read with me verses twenty-eight through thirty-one. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable and immersible. So it says that we become part or we have a reprobate mind. That simply means depraved or unprincipled. Listen very quickly. We're going to go through these very quickly. So the first thing we see, point A, point of morality, it says that when we are void of morality, we are filled with evil. To use some different words that maybe are easier to understand, verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. You see there that we become filled with evil. And when you are full of one thing, you will be void of another. And so point B God says here that we will begin to miss goodness. Verse 31, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. We are full of evil things, things that hurt us, things that hurt other people, yet we are missing the good things like love and mercy. See, depravity and understanding can't exist together. Envy and love can't exist together. Malice and mercy don't, ex don't exist together. And the third point, C, is that sin becomes our identities. Listen to the way that Paul describes us. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. You notice he didn't use actions there. He used character traits. He doesn't say they do these things. He doesn't say they get involved in gossip. He says they are a gossip. He doesn't say they hate God. They are God-haters. Sin becomes our identity, and this is the profile of man. This is the profile of all of us. From the moment we're born, we reject God, serve idols, chase lust, and we live our lives void of morality. Sin is our identity. And the problem with all of that is found in verse 32. 
Read this with me. And knowing the judgment of God, so all men reject God, although we should know Him, we have every way to know Him. Knowing the judgment of God, they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Not only those who are doing them, but those that have pleasure in sin. Our next take home truth. All people deserve death for rejecting God. And I want you to know, if you're here today and you're breathing, this is your profile. This is who you are. You and I deserve death for the rejection of God we have. And the gospel starts with this. The, Jesus, the gospel doesn't start with Jesus died for you. It starts with the reason he had to die. And we like to skip that part because it makes us feel insufficient. And it points to our brokenness. And it points to our need. And it reminds us that we are unlovable. But we deserve death. Now let me define death for you real quick. Because death is something that's hard to define. We think of death and we think of a funeral. We think of a hearse. We think of black and we think of crying. Here's what death is if you define it. Death is separation. Think about physical death. What happens? My soul will be separated from this body. That is physical death. I am separated from people that I love and they are separated from me. That's what death is. Spiritually, spiritually, spiritual death is separation from God. And let me be very clear here. If you're planning on getting to heaven and taking your chances with God, being like, oh, he's a good guy, let him in. It will not happen. We live our lives in death, separated from God. We will live our eternities separated from God as well. Very quickly, there are two types of people in this room today. The first is those of us who are unsaved. And I just want you to know, this is where you stand before God. You are separated from him now, and you will be separated from him forever. And if you died today, if you had a premature heart attack, or, or you got hurt at work, or you had a car wreck on the way home, you would stand before God, and he would say, depart from me. I cannot be in your presence. Your sin is your identity, and it disgusts me. Listen, I'm not trying to scare you. I don't believe in scare tactics. But I believe in informing people with truth. And here is what the Bible says. Jesus described what it would be like to be separated from him. We call this hell. It's going to be a place full of fire. It's going to be a lot of weeping. That means you're going to live your eternity with sorrow and sadness and gnashing of teeth, which is what you do when you're in agony. This is what it means to be separated from God, and it's what we rightfully deserve. But yet you can become, and some of us here are, the second type of people. It's those of us who are saved. Notice I didn't say a church member. I didn't say somebody who's moral. I said those of us who are saved. And if you're saved, let me say this. Sometimes we forget who we really are. We forget about our before Jesus and we get really caught up in how good I am now. But we have to remember who we are because this is the crux of the gospel is that our sin and unrighteousness keeps us away from God. And the only thing different about me than the rest of the world is Jesus changed my life. That is the only difference. So our next take home truth is Jesus takes our death so we can have his life. See, the starting point of the, of the gospel is not meant to depress us. It's meant to inform us that you are in need of a Savior. 
that you deserve death because you rejected God, because we've created idols, because we chase our lust, because we live without morality. But Jesus Christ came here and he lived the same life with the same struggles you and I lived. And he never did any of those things. And because of that, he didn't deserve death. But he chose to go up on a cross and die my death. Where's Miss Donna? Miss Donna, your song this morning couldn't have been any more perfect. He was crucified on my cross. He was crucified for me. And listen, all of that wrath that we talked about, all that anger and that disgust and that frustration of God was poured out on Jesus Christ instead of being poured out on me. And what did Paul say? All we have to do to accept that, all we have to do to accept that is put our faith in him. So if you are that first kind of person, live if you want to come up here. If you are that first kind of person and you're living, if you're living away from God, if you're living in death and you're separated from him, it can be changed today. You can't buy it. You don't have to buy it. You're not going to impress me enough for me to talk to God to get you into heaven. All it comes down to is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, all who call out to God will be saved. So often, often we express this as prayer. We go to God and we say, God, I know who I am. I know what my before is. We ask for his forgiveness and we ask for his salvation and he gives it to you. All you have to do is trust that he will. Today can be that day for you. Don't leave here again walking out of here because there's no promise you'll be here next week to take care of it. Come to Jesus now. Let's stand and worship.